0: Again, the healing of the deaf man, Mark 7, verses 31 to 37, and the healing of a blind man, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is God's word.
1: Former senior pastor of mine, Years ago shared with me that studying a passage of the Bible uh, can and even should be done in in three ways. You see the Bible as a window. You see, every book and passage of Scripture is a window into another world, a past world, life and events from both, both the author who's writing and the audience to whom he's writing. And our role looking into this world is simply to Observe and take notes. Then, you can look at the Bible as a painting. Every passage is crafted with equal parts purpose and style. Right? In our role in this kind of way of looking at the Bible is examining a work of art. Drawing connections through patterns and contrasts, like in a painting, right? And relationships. And how things look together. And they help us figure out what the artist is trying to communicate. We say this a lot. What's the artist trying to say here, right? When you look at a petting, hmm. This would be to interpret the author's intention. All right, so you have observation, intention. You might notice this is inductive Bible studies for you Bible study gurus out there. Thirdly, there is looking at the Bible as a mirror. Every passage in the Bible wants to to reflect back to us the truth about ourselves in relationship to his story. And that's the reality of looking in a mirror, is that there's always two images in mind, right? When you look in a mirror, you see one image, but you always have two in mind, right? There's this, and hopefully there's this, right? Tomorrow, next week, next year. The ideal you might have in mind, And that is what God's word does. Relying on the grace of God, he asks us to go from here to there. And he empowers us to do this through his word and by his grace. Now, if you're going to read the Bible as a window, a beautiful painting, and a mirror, which would you most likely resist? My guess would be a mirror. Here is what your life really is, and here's what needs to change. Or even harder, how you must change. That's never easy to sort of reconcile, is it? The apostles find themselves written into God's story with the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And he, in this story, pulls their faces up to a mirror. Jesus has already, we've seen in Mark, given them a window into who he is. He has already given them an entire wing of mixed-media paintings Right? He's even interpreted for them parables privately. Here's what this means. Here's how you understand this. Now it's mirror time. This is a mirror story. We, only, we have mirrors close by to us, almost at all times. Uh, there, there are mirrors, of course, in bedrooms and bathrooms, and rooms we want to feel bigger. In your vehicle, ladies, in your purses, men. It, well, it's not, let's hope not. Let's hope there are no man purses out there today. There might be. It's okay. We're not going to judge you. European (laughs) carryalls. In fact, you, you probably do have them without knowing it, right? Cell phones, right? The selfie view, right? People use that now. Mirrors, check themselves. See it sometimes. Things that aren't mirrors serve as mirrors. You have those smartphones. You have spoons, knives, stainless steel appliances, which serve, you know, the hiding good guys or bad guys in movies, right? When the killer's about to approach, and they're trying to hide, and they just... You know, just put a mirror around the corner, a little, little spoon, a knife, a refrigerator, right? And boom, all of a sudden, it's over, bad guy. I'm going to trip you and kill you with my spoon, right? That's how it works. And of course, there's the famous storefront mirror check. Um, and so for those of you who don't carry on mirrors anymore, it's because storefronts have actually designed themselves on the exterior to not have completely translucent windows. Why? They like you walking by their store and, of course, doing the old... Hmm. Oh, hello. (laughs) Hello, beautiful. How are you, right? I would do that. Or, no, find a bathroom and fix it, right? Or, no, and that's not fixable. Like in my case, uh, oh my gosh, I have a one o'clock shadow. Can't believe that. (laughs) You can't fix that, Ryan. There are things you can't fix just by looking in a mirror, either. And through these two miracles, Jesus is holding up a mirror to the apostles that they might see for themselves, I am like this deaf and stuttering man. I am like this blind man, and I can't just find a bathroom and fix it. Let me give you a few reasons why these two miracles serve as the apostles' mirror that God uses to finally help them see the truth about themselves and finally see their need for Jesus, this is the moment where the disciples finally break through and next week we'll see that they see Jesus as the king, as the rescuer, as God. So, the thesis here again, these two episodes of healing show the apostles, hey, you don't see yet, you don't hear yet, you only stammer and stutter my message so far. Why do I say that? And it's going to feel like I'm hammering this point home quite a bit, but it's important that we see what Jesus is doing here for the, the apostles. We know that since the beginning of chapter 6, when Jesus is rejected in his hometown, he sends the disciples out on a two-by-two mission. And since that time, Jesus has been simultaneously preparing his apostles, apostles to be messengers while grasping the message. It's amazing. It's amazing. I know you don't yet get the message. I'm going to send you out anyway, so you might see how good I am. And you might see how powerful I am. I'm going to even come through for you, though you don't fully trust in me or know me. So, first of all, he does that. He's trying to start to get them to see here's who I am. In the last four weeks, we focused on those closest to Jesus' as messengers, the apostles, needing to personally respond to Jesus as their king. Right? And so we looked at, like, Four weeks ago, they passed by on the sea to show them his nature. And they completely miss it. They don't see it at all. Jesus is walking on the water. They don't see it. Meanwhile, they dock, get off the boat. And all these people who've really never met Jesus before understand this man can rescue my life and rescue me from my circumstances. And they come to Jesus. It's like, guys, don't you see this? Don't you see who you're with? That's why that week in our, in, our, in a Nutshell was church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing does not mean you recognize, know, or trust Jesus Christ. And the next week, we saw the disciples would be tempted to think that because they were close to Jesus, that they've arrived to be like the religious insiders of the day, like the Pharisees. That would have been their goal. We finally have made it. But again, people who necessarily seem like insiders don't necessarily trust Jesus And we saw three weeks ago, Jesus gets them outside the camp. He retreats to show that anyone, even a non-Jew, can personally respond to Jesus through simple faith in him. Again, it's all about this personal response. Just because you're close to Jesus, just because you go to church, just because you're around me a lot, doesn't mean that you know me. And then finally, last week, Pastor Brett showed us that from the events between our two miracles here, that even the followers of Jesus Christ need their eyes open to respond to him in faith. So you see what's happening here. Jesus is trying to get them to see for themselves that he is God and to see that they don't see that yet. They need help. Why else do we know that Jesus is holding up a mirror here for the disciples? Both men, Jesus takes privately from the crowds, doesn't he? So it's just... Jesus, them, and who else? The apostles. That's how we get these stories. That's how we get these details in the story. Jesus takes them aside just in front of the apostles privately, shows them what he does, what he says, and how he does it. Fourthly, we get this other bizarre detail of the gradual healing. Isn't this strange? It's the only place I can find in the Gospels where we see Jesus partly heal someone. Isn't that kind of an odd moment? where this blind man, he starts to to look, and and Jesus says, hey, do you see anything? And the blind man, formerly blind man, looks up and says, well, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus touches him again, and he can fully see. What's the deal with that? You might wonder, why, why would this be a partial healing? Well, it makes sense, only if you understand Jesus Is trying to help the apostles see their own situation. They've stuck with Jesus and He with them. They're almost there. They've started to see, but they can't fully see yet. They've come a long way, but they haven't really opened their eyes to the reality that Jesus is God. He's the rescuer who's come to save them. See that? This is supposed to be a mirror for them. This is your story, apostles. This is your story. Can't you see? You need eyes, you need ears, you need a tongue to speak. The truth. Fifthly, are Jesus' questions in between the healings that mirror these two episodes. Look with me in chapter 8, verse 16, if you would. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Or are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Having eyes, don't you see yet? Ears hear. What does he do? Shows them a blind man. Shows them a deaf man, who can hear. Why? Because of King Jesus. This is your story. Don't you see, apostles? Don't you see, people? Last one. Lastly, again, hammering this point home. I know. After these healings, the disciples finally do see. I finally do hear, I finally do correctly speak who Jesus is. Look at me, look with me if you would, in chapter 8, verse 27 and following. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the King. You are the Rescuer of the world. We see. This is where they get it. Jesus finally has gotten their attention, and gets through to them the truth of their condition and their need. It's a mirror for them. And do you see it this morning? That's our in a nutshell. The sermon in a nutshell is where. If you get nothing else from this message, listen to this nutshell. Hello. Don't you see? Hello, insert your name here. Don't you see? Hello, Ryan. Hello, Noli. Hello, Eileen, JP, Tim. Don't you see what I'm showing you? Right before your face. This question this morning requires audience participation. The sermon's incomplete unless you take a look at your life and ask God, what are you trying to show me, God? To what are you trying to open my eyes and my ears? You're here this morning, which is evidence that God is at work in your life. He's brought you here. We've prayed that you would come this morning. We've asked God to bring the people he would will this morning to further open eyes and ears to who he is. And you're here So from whom and about what is God putting up a mirror and trying to say, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see what you're missing? Don't you see what I've prepared for you to step into in your life? What is that for you? From whom or what is God trying to show you? A mirror that God tries to hold up in our lives often comes in the form of God's Word. You read something in Scripture and you think, oh my gosh, that's me. (laughs) It's hard to hear, but this is me. Or it often comes from people, especially from the church, right? Maybe you see an example of someone living a godly life and you said, that's what I should be doing. Or you see people maybe even failing sometimes and you're like, that could be me. Or it's someone who says something to you and they don't mean to say what you need to hear. So it's that you know in your heart of hearts, oh man, that was for me. He also uses circumstances where things line up in our lives such that we recognize, oh man, I need to change. And he often uses these things together because we homo sapiens often don't get it the first time God's trying to speak to us. We're like, oh, oh, that's not me. <laughs> so he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going because he loves us so much. So From whom and what is he trying to say something to you? And about what? What's he trying to communicate to you? What is your mirror? For years, I struggled, friends, to let go of just fierce independence in my life. And I never saw it. Um, God wants us all to deny ourselves, to take up up our cross, to follow him. As we'll see, actually, in a couple weeks here, he uses those words. To more faithfully serve others. And God started to unveil um, his secret plan at helping me deny myself and serve others. Marriage. <laughs> Marriage just sort of does that. You know, you say, I do, and the next thing you know, like, oh my gosh, uh, I cannot do the things I used to do and the way that I did them. I've got to change. There's somebody else that God has called me to love and to be with in my life. And then his second part of his plan, if you should be so lucky, is uh, children who then further make you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Uh, you recognize, oh, what in the world? I, like Anything I used to do before, athletic events, uh, things of that nature. I love seeing new dads who, are, you know, who continue to keep up their rugby practices and schedule or their football schedule. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, nothing's going to change. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. I'll just... You know, she'll understand. I'll understand. We'll get a babysitter. It'll be really good. Yeah. <laughs> God's got a plan for you, brother. And He certainly did for me. But I fought it, man. I, years uh, later, a servant in the church, and I found myself giving um, talks or teachings three nights a week. Um, you know, I was accepting invitations to speak at this or at that. And, I just kept going, thinking, you know, people need me, and this is a great way to reach people. And in the meantime, Katie um, was struggling with postpartum depression after she had our second child, Gage, and she let me share that this morning. And But I didn't really see the need there. I was like, well, you know, God will help you. It will be okay. I was so driven to define myself by success as I saw it and as others viewed me so that I... Um, she would ask me sometimes, Ryan, can you just stay home today? Will you just please, just, can you just stay home? And I would say, you know, I can't. You know, other people need me. And I walked out the door. You know, the church needs me. And I walked out the door. And I was blind to the reality that I was putting my own needs first. Right? I, they were thinly disguised as other need, others' needs. And that's always how Satan tries to deceive us. This God, the God of this world blinds us as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, thinly disguised, oh, no, I'm just helping others. I'm serving other people. I was blind to the reality that I was really putting my own needs first. I was really just serving myself. Meanwhile, a church near and dear to my heart, uh, thousands of miles away, was breaking apart, largely because of the overwork of one of its pastors. And as I was hearing about this, and some of my good friends were sharing this to, with me, I, was, I didn't see in my own life, whoa, hey, hello. Couldn't see it. Things just got worse. So um, I reached out to a pastor and said, hey, man, we need help in our marriage. Like, we're struggling. Wife's depressed. She's having a hard time. And so I reached out to him, he sat us down, and he said to me, as part of what he said is, hey, man, you've got to change. You got to change. It's no longer about you. Oh, huh. I know that in the Bible. <laughs> You're telling me that. I'm a, I'm a pastor. Mm. It was humbling, man. I, I confessed my sin to God, went to the cross, received his forgiveness, remembered he's forgiven me. And I slowly began to change some of my habits, recognizing that he still loves me, he still cares for me. I slowly began to change some of my habits which made me love my family more and want to serve them more. I started to see some change. But it was interesting, just to reinforce his point, God sent another mirror into my life. Uh, an elder in our church, uh, this elder John Stewart. Uh, not that John Stewart, by the way, I should say. who <laughs> Funny guy, but probably terrible elder, um, I guess it would be. He's um, not a Christian, so that would be just one qualification. <laughs> and, and this guy, John Stewart, uh, he, he spoke into my life that... Um, I asked him to. I gave him permission to speak. into my life. And at one point, he said, you know what, Ryan? Um, you're up for a, a different position in our church to do more, even more preaching and teaching. Um, and he said, you know, what he, you know what he said to me? He said, you know, in terms of gift and ability, you were like near the top of our list, or at the top of our list. And he said, but you know what? Uh, in terms of servanthood, you were towards the bottom. I was like, oh, gosh. And I just... I, mean, I would just my heart sank as I was so humbled but that God loved me enough to put a mirror in front of my face and say, you got to change. Open your eyes, man. How is he doing that in your life? And that's humbling. It is hard to hear. But you know what? He doesn't just do it for hard things is not just do it for things we need to, to see about ourselves, but also for opportunities to step into as well, for things we can step into that he has he prepared for us. I used to be a student ministries pastor. I worked with middle school students and high school students and college students, university students. And um, God was so faithful to lead the right volunteers to come and help me pastor these folks and teach these folks about following Jesus it was so amazing the people we brought along, still great friends to these days. You know what the number one reason most of the people gave for their desire to work with this age group? The number one reason was when I look at them, I see myself. I see myself 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I still hear it today. We're doing this Christianity Explorer dinner group. And someone says, like looking in a mirror. Someone used that phrase. That's where I was. And God has been so faithful to do a good work and bring me along to this point. And the Holy Spirit uses these people, folks, and he uses encounters as a kind of mirror. Step into this. You know what this is like. You know what they must be thinking. You know what makes them tick. You were there, or would be there, but for the grace of God. I can use you. Perhaps that's you today. And God is saying, you know what? That can be you. Step out into what I've prepared for you in your life. Third thing I want to share this morning is just how to respond now. Jesus has asked His disciples to see the truth about themselves and to change, to, to plead with Him, to open my eyes, Jesus. He does that in our lives as well. So how are you going to respond? I'm going to cheat with my first thing here, and this is how not to respond. How not to respond. The mirror is for you and not for others. All right? Uh, You cannot force somebody to look into the mirror and change. Not even Jesus does this. Not even Jesus, you know, forces his apostles to see him for who he is and respond accordingly. He never demands, hey, guys, Messiah time here. All right? It's me. Get with the program. Instead, what does he do? He sends them out on a mission to help them feel their need. He takes them to desolate places to recognize their hunger and how he can satisfy. He walks to them on water to show that, hey, you're not alone. I am here. He asks them questions. Hey, do you guys understand yet? Do you hear? Do you see? Gives them opportunities to respond. Respond and respond they must. But they've got to do that on their own. And we see that here with the blind man, right? Jesus asks, do you yet see? No, I don't. I see trees. I see people walking like trees around. Great sight, by the way, you know, if you're a horticulturalist. But, you know, if you want to see people. And so he, 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 tell, he responds to Jesus. You notice the disciples almost never respond to Jesus' questions. You must respond. Others must respond. Especially those of you who are married with kids. I know your child just did something that reminds you of your spouse and you want them to see it. Right? You're like, hey, huh? Whose child's that? I mean I mean this happens (laughs) constantly. I mean, our children are one of the best mirrors the Holy Spirit uses in our lives if you have if you have kids. I mean, our youngest Gage, I mean, he is like he's like a prophet slash comedian. Right? And, and the, the guy, he loves just telling one-liners. He, he's really all quite brilliant one-liners at the dinner table. But it's so great. Like If we laugh, you know what's happening. He's going to tell it again. Before dinner's over, it is coming again. And if we don't hear it, he's going to repeat it three or four times. All right? and I, One day I recognize like, yeah, where did you learn that, Gage? Oh, Dad, I've heard you do that before. <laughs> oh, yes, that is true. I milk jokes, and I repeat them until someone hears them. That's wonderful um, and very humbling. <sighs> but it's for you. That's for you to notice, not for your spouse to point out. So for any of you who've ever joked, and this is, you don't have to be married or have kids to know, any of you who've ever joked or thought privately, oh, my job's to keep them grounded, it's my job to keep them humble. I just want to say this this morning. And I think this is from the Lord. That is not your job. That is not your job, church. Your job. The New Testament bears the weight of this. Whether it's a friend or a spouse, your job description in the New Testament is far on the side of encouragement, of love, of spurring on, of honoring, of patience. If that is you, who says, oh, it's my, job. it's my job to kind of keep them humble, stop it. Love, be patient, encourage. Only hold up a mirror when you're asked for advice, when you're asked to, or, or in extreme cases. So the first thing is the mirror is for you. The second thing here, uh, how can we respond this morning? Humble yourself. Mirrors rarely flatter at first. It's going to be hard to see. Do you notice, by the way, the judgment of the crowd after the, the deaf man is, is healed. It's interesting. They say, hey, wow, they're amazed. They're a- astonished. And then they say, he, man, he has done all things well. It's interesting. Uh, one rabbi I, I read said, um, it's actually repeated in many places, he said that healing a deaf person and healing a blind person are two out of the three messianic miracles that Jewish people would look forward to to say, oh, that is a sign of the Messiah. So when they say, oh man, he's done all things well, they're taking their judgment sheet, looking out and saying, Oh wow. Ooh, pay attention to this guy. He he does meet this criteria. He does meet this criteria. A similar thing actually happens in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has just shared the two greatest commandments love God and love your neighbor. And the scribe says to him, Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, teacher. You're right. You've judged correctly. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, Oh, enter my kingdom, or you too now are a child of God, because you know he says, You're pretty close. You're not far from the kingdom. Why? He is in no position to judge Jesus. <laughs> Neither the crowd nor the scribe of chapter 12 ever seem to have their ears opened or their eyes opened. You can't walk away remaining in a position of judge. When evaluating what God's doing, you might start in that position. Is this God? Am I correct in seeing what he's doing? But you can't stay there. You can't stay there. Submit to his loving evaluation. Humble yourself. Ask him, Lord... I know this is you. Help me. Help me take the next step. John Wesley, along with George Whitefield, was the founder of the Methodist movement, which later became uh, the Wesleyan Church. And you might come from that tradition. Uh, this was late 18th century England and America. And this movement was defined by a passion to reach the loss, especially those who are poor and marginalized. And it resulted, that kind of response to Jesus and a life of holiness, but for him it began on a ship to America in 1735, having been asked to become a missionary to the colony of Georgia, or Georgia, as people from there like to say, to live in Georgia. So I can say that. All right. So he was on his way there, and his goal, he said, he hoped to save the heathen from a fearful death. Save the heathen from a fearful death, he said in one of his journals. So he's on board still in January, three months at that point. A fierce storm hits to the point where it crashes into every cabin, breaks all the windows in the main cabin. Lasted for eight days total, Wesley found himself scared to death. He said all the Englishmen were screaming in terror. And down beneath his cabin, he heard men singing just a steady song. It was the Moravians the German Christians singing the Psalms of David. He goes beneath, and he asks, and he starts to listen. And he senses the Holy Spirit come over him, and he begins to ask them whether they feared. And one by one, he said, no, I don't fear death. Mildly, they said they didn't, that they trusted Christ in both life and death. Wesley's eyes and his ears were open to Jesus as Savior for the first time. It was like a mirror God held up to him. He'd come to save the heathen from fear. And he was that heathen. (laughs) God opened his eyes to save him from fear. He humbled himself. He asked questions. He learned about salvation by faith alone. Humble yourself if God's putting a mirror in front of your face. Lastly, pass on to others what he's done for you. This might sound like strange advice given this passage because the two episodes we read this morning end kind of strangely, don't they? In both cases, Jesus insists that the people who observe this miracle tell nobody else. It's interesting, in the first one, what do they do? They just keep on telling people. Similarly, at the end of the blind man, he says, don't go into that village, which is Jesus' way of saying if you go into the village, that's where gossip and rumors happen, right? It's like going to the airport fosters, right? You don't go to the airport fosters. You go there and you know, you know actually I love going to the airport fosters. You get a sense of what's going on in the community. You know, don't go there because if you do, you know you're going to tell someone. Why does Jesus do that? Why would Jesus keep people silent? Scholars deem this the so-called messianic secret. And it's often explained away solely because God's people in Jesus' day expected this sudden and already kingdom set up through a political and military rule. Jesus would be the conquering king who would lead an army over the people of Palestine everywhere and kick out the Romans. A kingdom started solely by signs and wonders of the Messiah and his kingship would be misunderstood. But that's not the only reason that Jesus says, hold on, be quiet. Don't tell people about this. And it is because Jesus didn't come to proclaim himself. I might say odd to you. Jesus didn't come when he was on earth to proclaim himself. He proclaimed a kingdom, he proclaimed his authority to forgive sin. You notice, especially in Jesus' gospel, Jesus proclaims his Father. He says, I look to my Father. He gives just enough hints about himself for people after the resurrection to realize, oh, that's what he meant. He was the temple to be raised up. He was the gate and the door and the bread of life. I see now. (laughs) Why did he wait so long? Why did he wait till after the resurrection? One, because he wanted the Holy Spirit to come and empower these apostles, but that hints at the point. That he would leave the proclamation of himself as Savior to the apostles themselves, that they would then spread through the early church and then spread through us today. Jesus' plan was to use us all along to give us this privilege, to, in one sense, get out of the way so that by the Holy Spirit, he could speak through us. Ambassadors were called vessels messengers, weak stumbling us. Knowing that he would be more glorified if he could use the weakest of the weak to proclaim the strongest of the strong. What a privilege. We haven't even gotten to the most curious detail of of what these two episodes share in common. Perhaps you've read these two miracles before. What do both have in common that stand out? Right? Jesus' tactile approach that he gets some spit. He puts, I mean, he goes up to a man puts his fingers in his ear. Q-tip style, right? He spits, he touches his tongue. He rubs his finger in some dirt, puts it on his eyes. Why is that? Perhaps it's a personal touch. That's what I've always thought. Some commentators say that because some Jews consider spittle of certain people to have healing powers, like powerful prophets. Jesus is the chief healer. He's trying to show In the Hellenistic world that Jesus lived in, people would use various kinds of natural balms, and maybe Jesus is trying to say, oh no, I am the natural healer. I've come the supernatural healer to heal people. Maybe that's it. But I think it's much simpler than that and easy to miss. At least I missed it until chewing on it this week, and the Holy Spirit showed me that if a blind man's going to get what Jesus is doing, Jesus has to appeal to him through the sense other than sight. Right? This blind man's going to understand who Jesus is. He's got to appeal to something else. So he spits, and he touches, and he speaks, doesn't he? Spits, touches, and speaks. If a deaf man's going to get what Jesus is doing and who's doing it, Jesus must appeal to something other than hearing. So he puts his fingers in his ears. Imagine this for a moment, putting his fingers in his ears. If you're, imagine you cannot hear anything. If you saw someone put their fingers in their ears, what would you think? They're acknowledging the truth of your condition. You're, you're deaf. He touches the man's tongue. What is he showing? I'm going to heal this. I'm going to do something here. He, then he looks up to heaven to display where this power is coming from. In other words, Jesus mirrors for them their desperate need and his sufficiencies through avenues they can grasp. And that's the good news this morning, friends. Jesus knows exactly what you need to hear, what you need to see, and how you need to speak. He can and will get through to you. Is he trying to do that today in your life? He won't force you. You have to step out, humble yourself, and admit your need for him. Let's pray together. King Jesus There are folks here this morning that you're trying to open their eyes, open their ears, loosen their tongues to see the truth of who you are. Please humble us. For those of us who, you've been trying to get our attention to see you as the Savior of the world and the Savior of our lives. Open our eyes to see you. Help us take the step Help us see you've been saying, hello, I love you. Don't you see? For those of us who haven't yet changed and you've been trying to show us some area of our life where we've fallen short, some habit that's been destructive to others and to ourselves, help us see and help us change. But maybe there's some opportunity that you've been calling us into. Jesus, help us see, help us hear, help us step into it. We're completely relying on you for this.